Ready, set, go. Hey, motherfucker, stop right there. I'm interviewing you this time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you are supposed to kind of be taking the lead on this one, aren't you? Let's fucking do it then. Well, um, do it right. This is uh, another edition. No, no, you've already, you got to start from (laughs) scratch, man. It's fucking, come on, the whole ready, set, go. Ready, set, go. Is that your count? It's actually three, two, one, see ya, but. No, ready, set, go. Come on. Put some oomph into it. Ready, set, go. All right. Back at you in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. This time, uh, I'm going to be asking the questions. Yeah. As you guys may remember this voice, it's David Jr. Ludwig, and I've got a special guest in the can with me today. (laughs) So, uh, what the fuck are you, and or who the fuck are you, and what do you do? I'm the fucking pilot, man. (laughs) I don't think I'm a special guest on this show. I think I'm just the the guy that talks to all the special guests. I'm the I'm the one that uh, that asks all the silly questions. Yeah, but not today. No, no, not today. Today we're gonna we're gonna switch it up a little bit. I'm gonna get to ask you a bunch of questions because. Nice. I've had a few people ask me, you know, who the fuck is this uh, fucking pilot guy? Right. And yeah, yeah. All right. Yes, I am the fucking pilot, also known as Dean. Um, and I'm a skydiver and a jump pilot and an author for Blue Skies Magazine. Awesome. And, and I run a podcast. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, that's not bad. You know, I mean, it's interesting anyway. So uh, let's start at the beginning, man. How'd you uh, how'd you get your start? What what came first, pilot, skydiver, author, um, podcast? Well, Post. I started yeah, podcast, right? <laughs> okay, I started podcasting when I was eight. Um, You're too old for that. They right. didn't have cell phones back then. Right. No, they didn't even have beepers <laughs> back then. We still had rotary phones. I was going to say, there was no push-button phones. No, then. man, no. I was actually born before man walked on the moon, so. Yeah, but at least you had a, you had a good year, and a, a solid year that you were born in. 69. 69, baby, yes. <laughs> summer love. Summer love. Yes, yes. I was born uh, June 21st, so the summer solstice, longest day of the year in the summer of love. Nice. It was kind of cool, right? Yeah. Um, and then a month later, they walked on the moon. <laughs> so, right on. a little ways ago. Um, I started flying when I was 16 uh, because I was a fucking horrible student. Uh, and my parents were trying to keep me probably from going to jail. I'm sure that's where they thought I was headed because I hated school. Just wasn't interested in anything. Um, and I had expressed an interest in flying um, from like 14 or 15 on. I saw some fucking movie uh, that sparked it. Uh, and so they got me flying lessons at Sacramento Executive Airport. And I started doing uh, lessons at 16 years old in a little 152 with an instructor that looked like the chick from Mork and Mindy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I had a you huge did, crush you on my- You just dated yourself again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From Mork and Mindy. Yeah. Uh, I had a huge crush on my instructor, which was kind of cool. Because 152, if you don't know, it's teeny little fucking airplanes. So oh, yeah. That's just, what I started flying on. Yeah, man. So you're wedged in shoulder to shoulder with uh, Jackie Clow. That was her name. Jackie Clow. I still remember. You can remember back that far. I can. It's going good. Yeah, man. It's getting better. It's getting better. So what was it like as a 16-year-old starting to fly? I know there's a a bunch of young pilots out there. I've got a couple friends that have started pretty young as well. and. It was different back then. I mean, um, you still just had to have the 40 hours to get your, your private pilot's license, but they let you do things like weird. You could do all of the flying and none of the ground school and then do the ground school after the fact, which I hated the whole ground school portion of it. The books and all that just drove me nuts, but I quite enjoyed flying the airplane. 
Uh, so I did really, really well in flying. In fact, I ended up doing a couple of cross-country solos without having done jack shit for, for uh, ground school, you know, just the bare minimum that I needed to. And then I got to like a stage check almost where they had you go fly with another instructor from the uh, the flight school and uh, everything was going good. We're doing maneuvers and, and steep turns and stalls and all that shit. And then uh, he's like, okay, uh, that was all really good. So I want you to go ahead and uh, navigate to, to this VOR uh, <laughs> and get, get us to this VOR. And I'm like, yeah, do what? Get to get us to this VOR. You know how to do that? And I'm like, what's a VOR? Because <laughs> you did none of the book stuff. I did none of the book stuff. Uh, yeah, so it all came to a grinding halt right about then. I didn't take flying too much further at that age there because, again, I was a fucking slacker. So it didn't it didn't do the job it was intended for. It didn't it didn't pull your head out of your ass. No, no, no. Just uh, uh, showed everyone how deeply it was up there because I really did enjoy flying. I just didn't have the motivation to do it. I was a lazy fucking sixteen year old. I hated it. Yeah. Did that uh, did that help you uh, help inspire you to to make the next uh, stage? Because you were in the military as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my stint in the military. I'm not cut out for the military, uh, not at all. I joined the Navy because of the movie Top Gun. Again, that dates me. Um, <laughs> I ended up in boot camp working. Um, uh, we had like a service week, a week that you got assigned somewhere on the base to do shit. And I, I was split between uh, ba- basically a base cleanup kind of thing and, and washing dishes for my work week. And I ended up spending a lot of time uh, in the NTC main building polishing the plaque um, that was mounted on the bathroom door where uh, Tom Cruise tries to fuck Kelly McGillis in the bathroom. <laughs> so there was a plaque on that door that said the movie Top Gun filmed here. And of course, by then I had figured out how full of shit that movie was. As good as it was, I'm a huge Top Gun fan. I still love that movie, but it's bullshit. Uh, and yeah, no, I hated Tom Cruise for a long time. You, you got to uh, actually yeah. rag on him a little bit. Yeah, I did. I, I I did. Uh, when I flew for him when they were doing the uh, uh, the Mission Impossible movie, I actually, in a lull in the conversation in front of his whole crew, I'm like, I got a bone to pick with you, and told him that he ruined my young life because of that movie, and that I hated him until I saw that movie where he died like every 10 minutes, and then I forgave <laughs> him. So then I'm like, all right, you know, you've, you've paid the price. You died a lot, so. He's really nice to me. I know a lot of people aren't particularly big Tom Cruise fans, but he was he was quite nice. He told me I was a fast pilot, which coming from Maverick is pretty fucking cool. Yeah. 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 You went home and used that one. Too. Damn right. Yeah. So Maverick <laughs> told me I was a fast pilot in a twin otter. <laughs> yeah. Well, that covers uh, part of it, but um, that's not where it kind of left off for you. So you, you started flying. You went to the Navy. Got yeah. out of the Navy. Got out of the Navy, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I went in under a, a what's called a three-year C college program. So basically you went in and you would do whatever the fuck they wanted you to do for three years, and then you were supposed to get out and have some money for college, uh, which, of course, I didn't put to use. Fucked all that up as well because when I got out of the military, I didn't want to do anything responsible. And I was back in uh, Northern California riding a fucking bicycle around town working at the Holiday Inn um, just – Hotel, motel, yeah, dude. I mean, imagine you're just shy of 21 years old, and your only form of transportation is a, a fucking bicycle, and you work busing tables at a at a banquet department in the Holiday Inn. It was a very sad life. How'd you get from that to skydiver? I took my pants off. <laughs> Literally, <That's it>. yeah. <laughs> I uh, long story short, I told one of the well, not one of the 
while waiting for a banquet to break at the Holiday Inn, um, uh, one of the girls that I worked with asked me what I did when I had lived briefly down in Los Angeles. And for some reason, out of my mouth comes this complete bullshit lie that in between going for casting calls, which was a total lie, uh, and uh, uh, working whatever other job I had that I worked as moonlighting as a stripper. You were trying to get laid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it was ridiculous because I was, what, I, I think I was maybe 165 pounds and skinny as can be and pasty white, and there's no fucking way in the world that anyone would believe that I was a stripper. So why it just, why that popped out of my mouth is fucking beyond me. Um, and uh, then, I repeat, because you were trying to get laid. Yeah, but, yeah, but still, <laughs> I don't know why I would have used that to try and get laid. It, it wasn't going to work. And uh, um, I regretted it the instant that I said it, and about, I think... Maybe a week went by. Uh, I didn't have to answer any questions about it because the banquet that we were getting ready to clear broke right as I just spilled this bullshit all over the place. And uh, um, about a week went by and no one had asked me about it. I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. I've gotten away with it. And I, this is the you know the most horrible thing I've ever said and, and no one's going to call me on my shit. And then the girl that I had a crush on came bouncing up to me, boobs flying all over the place, asking, begging for me to do her this huge favor. And I'm thinking, of course, all right, finally I'm going to get laid. And the favor was <laughs> her sister was having a birthday and would I please, 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 please dance for her sister. Um, and being the complete and total fucking coward that I am, instead of saying fuck no and running away, I said yes, because it was easier. <laughs> so I did the show, worst experience of my entire life, which funny enough led to a telephone call from a guy who owned a local striptease telegram company in Sacramento, my hometown. So I did this show in my hometown. And then got a telephone call from a guy that ran a striptease telegram company in my hometown offering me a job in my hometown taking off my clothes for a living. And? And I did that for 11 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, um, I ended up doing a, a show in a place called Club Onyx in Fresno. Hello to anybody in Fresno, uh, if you remember that from the way back days. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it was an all-black striptease telegram company that also did stage shows. And it turns out that I was the token white boy uh, for this particular <laughs> show. And I, th I made a fucking fortune on that show, I think only because the crowd was so shocked that a skinny white boy in acid-washed blue jeans and silver-tip cowboy boots would come out and dance to Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison in front of an all-black and Latino crowd. Um, they just threw money at me. And he offered me a job on the drive home, and, and uh, that ended up segueing into a career in, in Vegas, of all places, for fucking 11 years. Wow. Yeah. So you, you made the, the move from Sacramento to Vegas to be a stripper. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I did the, the telegram thing in Northern California for almost four years. Um, and you would literally drive from house to house or restaurant to restaurant doing these 15-minute telegrams, you know, these joke birthday things. And, and so you'd take off your clothes. And, and I turned it into something funny because I was really insecure about the fact that I was not built to be a stripper. Um, and uh, you would drive all over the place and do shit between 8 and 11 shows a night. So you'd just be driving all over Northern California. Um, Naked. Yeah, basically. Basically, yeah, you're you're literally driving down the freeway changing from a business suit to a construction worker to a cop while you're driving down the road cuz you're racing to get to your next show. And I did that for about yeah, almost 4 years uh while I was also promoting raves and doing lots of drugs. 
uh, eating ecstasy all over the place and having it as you would as a fucking 21 year old stripper. I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, it's almost a job requirement. Um, but after four years of that, I got burned out on the party scene. The, the raves just weren't doing it for me anymore. I really didn't want to party anymore. And, uh, um, moving to Vegas was actually the responsible choice. I took a job, uh, managing an apartment complex. I don't think anybody would ever say moving to Vegas was a responsible it was choice. Totally the responsible choice. I got a. I was when I was transitioning out of stripping in Northern California. I took a job uh, renting apartments in the the uh, property that I lived at because I figured, fuck it, you know, it's a little extra money. I uh, liked the girls that that ran the office, and and so they offered me a job renting apartments, and I did that for I don't know, about six months or so, and then I took a vacation for Christmas to see my sister and family. My sister was a school teacher in Vegas at the time. Uh, and uh, I was walking down Las Vegas Boulevard at like 11.45 on Christmas Eve, and it was fucking packed with people. And I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. You know, it's Christmas Eve, and it's just going off. I was standing in front of Treasure Island back when they used to have the old pirate show, watching this, you know, this big pirate schooner sinking and explosions and people diving off of buildings and stuff going, all right, this is, this is kind of a fucking cool town. And ended up putting in applications for apartment uh, jobs in Vegas. And uh, I had driven all the way back to Northern California. And the day that I got back, I got a telephone call from one of the places that I put in an application asking me to come in for an interview, like two days later. So I had to drive all the way back to Vegas, did the interview, drove all the way home. And I was home for another day or so when they offered me the assistant manager position. Totally unqualified for it. Absolutely unqualified. But I got the job. Uh, so I ended up moving to Vegas to rent apartments. Awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, let's ask the question that I know everybody at home is wondering. <laughs> what is the most interesting, terrifying, fun dance you've had to do for, for one of your customers? Oh, Jesus. Um, well, the very first one was the most terrifying, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, I had to do one where... Um, Myself and a female uh, entertainer got hired to go dance for a brother and sister birthday party, um, <laughs> dressed as cops, uh, but it was in South Sacramento. Or was it in South Sacramento or West Sacramento? Uh, anybody in Sacramento would be able to tell me back in the, the uh, mid-90s when the Latino gangs ran a specific area. Anyway, we got hired to go to a gangbanger party dressed as cops in the middle of the fucking day. That was that was kind of scary. That was, yeah, that was kind of scary. That one didn't. I don't, uh, I don't doubt that at yeah, all. Yeah, no, we ended up racing away from there. It was, it was not good. So, yeah, that one, that one was kind of scary. And then, uh, um, dude, there were so many fucking weird ones. Do what? Didn't you, uh, didn't you do a, a, a dance with your mom in the audience? Oh yeah, that was in Vegas though. That was, that was kind of fucking. That was just funny. Uh, somehow the, I, I ended up, uh, working at a stage show in Vegas. Um, uh, it was at a place called the Olympic garden. It was the only male review at the time. And I was the 10th guy ever to get hired at that particular company. Uh, and when I started out, we were in this small little back room that, uh, would hold a maximum of about a hundred girls and there'd be 10 guys dancing. Uh, and by the time I ended up leaving there, we had the entire upstairs of the club, which would hold over 500 girls. Um, and there were probably 30 of us dancing. Uh, and that particular night, I think I had mentioned uh, to the DJ at the time, a guy by the name of Brandon, that my uh, mom was in town and probably stopping by to see the show. And he must have seen <laughs> me give her a hug when she walked in, because when I went up to do my stage set on the next one, he announced that my mom was in the audience. 
and they fucking <laughs> lost their shit. It was we. I don't. Women are strange that way, man. They thought it was just the coolest thing in the world that my mom was there. I mean, that's pretty. That is pretty cool. It was weird. It was really <laughs> weird. Well, and then the funny thing was, so you'd do the stage show. You'd have like three songs. You'd do your little routine, and then you'd get off the stage. And at that club, we did table dances. So just like the women for men, you're bumping and grinding on girls at their tables the whole rest of the night. That's where your money is. You're making twenty bucks a song. Um, so as soon as you finish the stage set, especially that one, because I had announced that mom was in the audience, um, I had fucking more table dances than I knew what to do with. And I'm working my way through the crowd, not even thinking about the fact that my mom is there somewhere. And then I, <laughs> I ended up, I think I was dragging my face up some woman's crotch, uh, doing one of my signature moves and look over my shoulder and there's my proud mom taking pictures. And I'm like, Oh honey, you, can you hang on for a second? Mom, you got to fucking go. <laughs> She was just proud of her boy. Yeah, no, that's just a little. No, you you've got to go. That's fine. Yeah, parental pride is one thing, but this is weird. So, yeah. So bad student to uh, the yeah, Navy. My... You were a seaman. Yeah, I was. Fitting. A, I was an airman. Oh, you were an airman. I was an airman. I was in an F fourteen squadron in Top Gun. <laughs> I really was. Uh, yeah, to uh, to uh, stripper. To stripper. Yeah. Where does uh, skydiving come in? There was there was a segue to it. Wasn't there? Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that I can trace my entire adult life back to one lie to try and get laid is is kind of the, the <laughs> linchpin of that whole story. But um, no, I ended up in Vegas, and uh, um, Vegas, a lot of people have heard me speak at length about uh, Flyway, the wind tunnel in Vegas. They were having a grand reopening uh, of the wind tunnel at the time. And I had, when I was a kid, my dad and I used to watch this show called, uh, well, two shows, one called That's Incredible and one called Real People. And I don't remember which show it was, but one of those shows did a segment on Flyaway when it was initially open in the 80s. Uh, and it was exactly like you've seen in all the old videos, the big baggy balloon suits, and you jump into the, the air and fly around the room. And I remember seeing that as a kid, thinking that looked like the coolest fucking thing ever. And so it was stuck somewhere in my memory back there for years and years and years. And then living in Vegas, after I had been working for the club for a little while, I saw a flyer for the grand reopening. And I went, holy shit, I remember this. I got to go do this. And I went and flew once. Um, and my instructor was a guy by the name of Rob, Robert Ogle, who actually owns got um, Flyaway Pigeon Forge now. Okay. Uh, so he's been in Pigeon Forge for quite some time. Uh, but at the time, he was running the place in, in Vegas. And Rob took me in and gave me the what I assume is a standard line for all the students. Hey, you're a natural, man. This is great. I literally ran across the street to the ATM with my suit still on to get more money so I could keep flying. Um, and uh, when it was all said and done, he's like, you really should go out and make a skydive. And that solidified the idea. Uh, and, uh, I think it took me almost a month and a half because of bad weather, but I ended up making my first jump at skydive Las Vegas in Boulder city, doing a tandem, uh, with a guy by the name of Bruce Henderson. So that's how skydiving came in is it, it got launched because of the wind tunnel. I ended up working in that wind tunnel for quite a few years, uh, and then became a full-time Vegas skydiver. Yeah. Worked for every job zone that was in that place, including outlaw skydiving, which was pretty badass. So yeah, yeah, Vegas was my start. Wow, hmm. that's uh, it's a weird town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, well, so, and, so... and Scott of Las Vegas was not a fun jumper friendly drop zone either. So you'd go you know, as soon as you graduated, it was kind of like, all right, now you're just getting in our way. Um, so myself and and uh, who would eventually become my Skyser partner would uh, drive down to Paris Valley 
to jump because Paris Valley was about two hours away. So any of the Vegas fun jumpers would generally go down and jump the turbines down there. Yeah, I've heard some stuff about the uh, the drop zone, the drop zones over there back in the back in the days. This is fucking crazy. I've had a few people, uh, for close friends that have rolled through there, worked. I, Nicole was there for a little while. You've yeah. been there, and it, 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 it was a, it was a money maker. It was a tandem tandem factory, and if they were doing AFF and stuff like that, it was get done, get your license, and get the hell out of here, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It was. Uh, I mean, the, 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 there was a bit of a curse. On the Vegas drop zones for a long time. I haven't jumped there in a very, very long time, and I know a guy by the name of Brent Buckner actually owns uh, Skydive Las Vegas now and has has done really good things with it, and and uh, a lot of operations have come through there. But when I was jumping out there, it was North Las Vegas, and which was basically the uh, don't go out there because they're just a bunch of crazy fuckers, you know, jumping antiquated gear and no rules. And then there was Skydive Las Vegas, who was Mikey Hawks. Um, who was, and as far as I know, still is the most hated man in tandem skydiving on the planet. Uh, in the two and a half years that I worked for him, he went through over 200 staff members, packers, jumpers, all that stuff. Cause he was just insane, like crazy, crazy. Um, and, uh, uh, but you could make a stinking fucking fortune. Japanese tourists were insane. Um, they would come out literally by the bus loads and we had, uh, tour guides that would bring them out and on the bus ride from Vegas up to Boulder city, which was about 30, 40 minutes to get up there. Uh, they would tell them that not tipping your tandem instructor or your cameraman was very, um, uh, rude, you know, that it was, it was very dishonorable if you didn't tip them. So it, you'd see the bus <laughs> load come in and you'd make fuck $200 in tips a day. And forget to cash your paycheck. You'd get a paycheck once a week and it'd just get shoved in the glove box because you were walking away with 200 bucks a day in cash. That's actually how I transitioned for quite a while out of dancing because I was making so much money with skydiving. I'm like, well, I don't have to fucking go to the club anymore, which was great. Once you started skydiving, did did you know that you wanted to do tandems? Did you know you wanted to? Oh, God, no. I fucking hated to. Oh, no, 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 no. I was a camera flyer. Um, uh, my first video jump, I think I had maybe 20 skydives, uh, <laughs> all you, all you new skydivers out there. Um, oh, yeah. no, don't do any cha- rules have changed for a reason. Yeah. No, don't no, do I, that. <laughs> um, Kevin love, um, uh, my good friend and tunnel instructor at the time, um, had a, a headhunter uh, helmet. Uh, with uh, cameras on it and we had gone down to Paris Valley and he wanted to do a four-way jump with um, Gary Spear, the guy that owned Flyaway at the time, uh, a girl by the name of Juliana C., Lou Sanborn. Ah, uh, D1. Yeah, fucking licensed D1 and Kevin Love. He, he wanted to do this four-way and there was nobody around to shoot video. Well, by then I probably had, I don't know, fucking 20 hours flying in the tunnel. So just flying stable on my belly above a group didn't seem like that big a deal. So he's like, see if this fits you. And he puts his fucking camera helmet on my head. All right. So <laughs> we're going to climb out and you're going to be here on the outside of the airplane. And we're going to go and you follow us and just sit right up above us and just back a little ways and just look at us. All right. Now, mind you, I'm flying like a PD fucking 210. Yeah. You know, because I'm still, you know, I'm barely off student status at this point, um, shooting video. And so my very first ever video jump that I ever shot was a four-way with Lou Sanborn. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He actually bought a copy of it. 
So I get to say my very first video I ever shot, I, I sold a copy to Lou Sanborn. I even got him to sign my logbook, which is fucking cool. That's awesome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lou's, Lou's awesome. So is Kevin. I've, I've known Kevin for a long time yep. as well. And he's... Uh, yep. So yeah, that's how I ended up... Uh, hats off to, to Kevin. He's the reason that I started shooting video. And then because Vegas was Vegas, um, there was uh, a drop zone that was... Started out in North Las Vegas and ended up in a trailer out of Gene, uh, Nevada, which was opposite side of the hills from from uh, Boulder City, uh, that was called Outlaw Skydiving. Uh, and uh, Outlaw Skydiving was a, a good name for it um, because I ended up getting hired to shoot tandem videos when I had less than 30 jumps or maybe, <laughs> maybe 30, 35 jumps at the time. Um, now, mind you, by then I'd already broken a leg and had a cutaway. Uh, so I was experienced. <laughs> um, I think it was probably under jump number 50 that I shot uh, video, second video, Kevin Love primary video, me second video, a guy by the name of Galen who was a local um, firefighter and his tandem student from 29,000 feet out of a King Air with a transponder off because they wouldn't give us permission to go that high, so the King Air just turned off the transponder we had thus the oh, outlaw skydiving. Uh, outlaw skydiving. We only had supplemental oxygen, so we were breathing in the airplane. But of course, there were masks, so you got to put your camera helmet on. So to get the helmet on, you're taking the mask off. So by the time we rolled out of the airplane, the tandem tried to leave before Kevin climbed out because we were all hypoxic as fuck. Um, I was last one out the door, and I remember as they all leave, I bomb out the door, thinking, "Do I get bigger or smaller to go faster?" Because I was just <laughs> done in. Um, so it was either 28 or 29,000 feet and, uh, a little um, hypoxic, a little hypoxic. Yeah. And, uh, um, I was the last one out and the lowest one down. Of course, I'm the last one shooting video. So yeah, it was, that was outlaw skydiving. And it was, that was the, the molars, uh, awesome guys, uh, and mental, every one of them. The brothers are fantastic. Yeah. AJ awesome. rest in peace. He's not with us anymore. I've still got a couple of the outlaw t-shirts and stuff from back in the day. Yeah. Good shit. Good shit. <laughs> Right on. So, uh, how'd you make the transition to the fucking pilot? Oh God! Because you're, you're skydiving now, so you're around it a little bit, and you were, you know, you were flying when you were younger, but yeah, you didn't um, do too much after that. No, no, man. I jumped for for quite a few years. I did a bunch of years in Vegas, and ended up leaving Vegas with a few thousand skydives, and I got hired on uh, to shoot video, do tandems and AFF at Cross Keys. Um, so that would have been end of two thousand and three. Uh, so I'd been jumping for a while by then. Uh, and uh, um, when I got to Cross Keys, Cross Keys had uh, uh, a place called Philadelphia Flight Academy uh, on the airfield. I had had uh, a couple of other jobs uh, in Vegas because uh, Michael Hawks I worked for for a couple of years and finally had to leave his operation. And then Scott Evan got a bit rough around the edges. And I went back to stripping for a little while. But by the time I went back, the club was so packed with guys that it was just this cutthroat, horrible environment. And you were basically having to steal money to make any money anymore. So it was miserable. Um, so I ended up getting a job working security at uh, the Venetian. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, I was on... Um, I was on and outside the night that uh, uh, um, Siegfried and Roy, that Roy got mauled by the lion. 
Oh, wow. Oh, it was hilarious. And I know that sounds horrible, <laughs> but it was fucking hilarious because we had heard that something had happened and I was outside security. So all the cars are coming through and you're just, you know, hey, how's it going? And people are coming in and this guy pulls up and uh, he's all, did you hear what happened across the street? And I'm like, no. He's all, Roy got mauled by one of the lions. And I'm like, is that what's going on? He's like, yeah, man, first piece of pussy the guy ever gets and it almost killed him. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm dying laughing on that. But um, so, yeah, I did shit like that for a while, but I ended up getting in an altercation working as security and I trashed my shoulder um, at work. And uh, um, I ended up getting a settlement, a workman's comp settlement that came in like a year after it happened uh, when I was in Cross Keys because I'd had to have a couple of surgeries. And so I had, I don't know, like ten, twelve thousand $12,000 that I had gotten for this settlement. And uh, um, like most skydivers, I was terribly responsible with my money. Uh, so it was burning a fucking hole in my pocket. Um, what can I blow this money on? Exactly. You know, and I had blown up a parachute, so I replaced my ragged out Stiletto 120 with a brand new Velocity and all that stuff. And it literally was just burning a hole in my pocket. And then uh, a guy by the name of Mark Cruzy, uh, who ran the loft um, at... Uh, um, Cross Keys was like, hey, I'm, you know, getting my pilot's license. I'm going to be flying over to this place called Flying W. You should come with me. I got to do some stuff over there. And this guy named Paul Patterson, who's an instructor, is going to be going, you should go up and do one of these Discover flights because I know you've flown. And I'm like, yeah, fuck, why not? You know, I mean, I, it, I didn't really feel like going, but I'm like, fuck it. I got nothing better to do. Uh, and ended up doing like this hour Discovery flight out of the Flying W. And by the time that flight was over, I had signed up to finish my uh, license. So finished the license, got the, uh, um, got the private pilot's license, um, promptly went and had a flying date where my date threw up all over the airplane, uh, and spent, not, uh, not as you planned. No, <laughs> no, no. She spent like an hour laying face down on the ramp at Cape May, uh, cause she was too sick to get back in the plane. <laughs> so yeah, not really good. And, and then I ended up uh, lucky enough, um, because I had just gotten my license, um, John Eddowes, who owned Cross Keys at the time, uh, was also running Skydive Sussex. Uh, and a lot of the times there, you know, somebody'd have to fly down to Sussex to somebody got hurt, somebody was tired, somebody was sick, or they needed gear or something. Uh, so every once in a while he'd grab whoever, you know, whatever pilot was around, at, give them one of the planes and have them fly down whatever gear you needed to Sussex. So he good had way to me, earn hours. What's that? Good way to earn some extra hours. Yeah. So all right, fuck, you're just gonna give me a plane and have me fly down to Sussex, sure. Um, and I flew down to Sussex, dropped off the gear, hung out for a while, shot the shit, and then got back in the airplane thinking I got plenty of time before sunset. And then the weather started to come in. And um, as I'm getting closer to cross keys, the ceiling's dropping more and more. And anybody that knows Skydive Cross Keys knows that that runway is not an easy runway to spot. Uh, it's just teeny and it's wedged in between all these trees. And, and uh, this is pre-GPS. You know, this is IFR. I follow roads. Oh, they had GPS, but the plane that I was flying didn't have GPS. And I'm watching the ceiling is dropping more and more and more. And I think by the time I finally managed to spot where the field was, the ceiling was below a thousand feet and the sun was almost setting as I spotted the runway. So scared myself pretty good. I'm like, all right, that could have been really bad because I was low time. Um, so as soon as I landed, I'm like, I'm either not going to be a pilot or I'm going to get my instrument writing. Well, about that time, this was the end of the 04 season, and I went back to Northern California to um, relax for the winter and did my instrument course. So now I'm invested, you know, flying-wise. I've dumped some some cash into it. So when I got back to Cross Keys in 05, I did my commercial, 
Uh, and when I finished up with my commercial and the season wrapped up that year, I went back to Northern California again, started jumping for Skydance for Ray Farrell. Um, and uh, um, then Ray eventually, after about a year and a half of jumping with him, I was flying his 172 uh, or 182. Uh, and as soon as I rolled through a thousand hours, he put me in the pack 750. Uh, which was oh, nice. fucking epic. I mean, nobody hits a thousand hours and gets literally right into a beautiful turbine, uh, except me. I got right at that point. They were the packs are still pretty new to skydiving, weren't they? They were fucking brand new. Yeah, um, I think he had had that pack for just a, a maybe a year and a half or two years. It was the first pack ever to be in the U.S. Uh, well, technically, the first pack ever to make it to the U.S. Only made it a hundred miles offshore. <laughs> where it's still at the bottom of the fucking ocean along with the pilot. Oops. Um, but so I ended up flying that second pack. And because it was so new, I flew for him for a few years. And at one point, I was one of the highest time pack pilots in the U.S. for a while there. Now everybody's got a shitload more hours than me. But back then, there just weren't that many packs. I think there were maybe two or three packs, 750s in the country. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, which was super cool. So that's kind of how the the flying portion started. For Every, sure, everybody I've heard from has said that they're that they're awesome to fly. Fucking love flying it. I hate jumping out of them, but they're awesome. To fly. Well, they, you know, they're awesome <laughs> for tandems. For tandems, they're fantastic because it's the straddle bench. You slide down, you plop on the floor. You have your student curl their feet literally under the airplane. So you tell your student just try and touch the bottom of the airplane with your heels. Do a seated exit and roll out. Yeah, now they're fucking arched. It's impossible to be taking un, taken unstable from a seated exit out of a pack. It is literally the easiest tandem exit in the world world and for flying them in regard to that kind of stuff it's it's a machine it's fantastic uh it's when you get you know you got 15 fun jumpers and they want to launch 15 way um the pack 750 can stall for sure um and uh, there's been a few times where i'm full forward and all the way right adding power screaming fucking go because i'm watching the nose starting to come up no matter how much power i put in but uh knock wood i never uh, i never stall the pack yeah, I was in a I was in an auto when it stalled. That Oof. that wasn't that wasn't too much fun. Yeah, no, no, I'd like to skip that stuff. I mean, the 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 big thing behind stalls is to stay in front of them. Don't do it. <laughs> well, yeah, this was on uh, one of the world record attempts for the sixty nine way. Yeah, the world record, and I was standing outside on the step, and uh, Brian Buckler, uh, Brian Buckland, sorry, um, Buckland was on the on the camera step behind me, and. Um, I happen to know the pilot pretty well. He actually flew at my my home drop zone um, that I was jumping at in Georgia, and I'm watching the nose go up, watching the nose go up, watching the nose go up, and I'm like, it's, it's coming. Yep. And then about the time that it's coming, all I could think of is if I fall off, I'm going to get cut. <laughs> so I don't know how I got my, my foot back on the step. I was able to keep a hold of the, the, the floater bar. I was able to get my foot back down on the camera step. I look behind me, and Buckland's gone. <laughs> and... uh out we, go, out we go, and man, I'll tell you what, he uh, he made it back to the formation. Nice. He was shooting video for it, but he started tracking along with it, and <laughs> we got into uh, to the debrief, and, and Rook and uh, Swanson and all those guys are we're looking at the video, and we see him come off, and we see him tracking, and we see him tracking, and then all of a sudden, like, the, the formation is getting closer and closer and closer, and by the time we were getting to breakoff time, he was there, but um, stalling. Yeah, watching the airplane stall was was scary as hell. Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny too because the um, the formation stuff is always this extra added level of tension for the pilots, of course. And when you're flying trail, there's a 
depending on uh, um, the power settings and the air speeds and, and how well everybody's sticking to the plan, flying trail can be a really fucking nerve-wracking place to be. And it feels because you're not looking at your gauges, you know, I mean, your eyeballs are on your plane, especially when you're getting ready for the exit. And, and uh, uh, all you want to do is what's my airspeed? This feels wrong. I feel pitched up too high. I feel too slow. And you really don't want to, you can't take your eyes off of the, the formation. So it's, uh, uh, you know, it can be, it can be pretty nerve wracking. The boys out in Chicago have got a fuckload more experience flying the uh, formation stuff than I do. But uh, yeah, I've had some pucker factors. I mean, this was just three airplanes. It was a Casa and two Otters. And oh, I yeah. mean, now they're up to, I, I forgot what Rook had said when, when oh, we interviewed him, but it was, insane. I think it was like seven aircraft yeah. or eight aircraft no, that were flying for Well, there's that one famous one. picture that came out, what, fucking probably more than a dozen years ago now, that's just that line of twin Otters that's like fucking, it looks like it's 15 twin Otters just all trailed behind each other it's beautiful shot yeah beautiful shot yeah that's that's some that's some stuff right there but uh, again the pack 750 was kind of known for for potentially stalling if you didn't if you, if you got behind the plane um and it was a pretty easy plane to fly i mean it was it was as basic a turbine as you could possibly get what's it's, your favorite oh i mean the pack 750 was my first love but my true love's the otter for sure the um yeah, yeah, for sure. The Otter. There's no doubt. It's just the, the most amazing. The Sherpa's a lot of fun to fly as well, but the Sherpa's too crew, so it's very different feeling. Um, and you're also so far ahead of the engines that the sounds are different, and it's very quiet plane to fly because you're sitting so far forward of the engines. But the Otter's just the Otter, man. That plane is a, it's a fucking superhero. Yeah, you got to, uh, you got to experience the Otter from the, from the opposite side just recently, huh? Yeah, dude, that was super cool. I was so so stoked to do that. Uh, it was on my flight back out of uh, out of Nepal uh, when I was coming back from Everest, and when I flew out of Lukla, I was sitting behind the captain's seat in a twin otter out of Lukla, which was pretty fucking cool. And for anybody that doesn't know, Lukla is a really sketchy looking airport. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's rated as one of the most dangerous airports in the world, at least one of the most dangerous paved uh, runways in the world. I think it sits at. What just above twelve thousand feet, uh, and it's, ooh, what is it? I think it's twelve or fourteen hundred foot long, <laughs> so it's not a big field. Wow. Yeah, and they're they're working their asses off. I mean, that's it, the funny thing was we got in the Otter and and uh, um, like I when I flew Otters for uh, Seaborne Airlines out of the Caribbean, uh, you know, all bags got weighed, um, passengers got weighed. You know, I mean, we were you were super dead on it. The guys out of Lukla just grabbed my bag and threw it on the plane. I'm like, you're not, wow, okay. You're not weighing any bags. You're not nothing. We're just, wow, all right, let's fucking go. <laughs> yeah, weight and balance, what's that? That yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, No, those guys are, yeah, that's that's next level kind of flying too. That's that's uh, That makes me look fucking like a big pussy. Did you talk to the pilots at all when you were? When yeah, you... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we landed and, I mean, what's the, what's the old joke? Uh, um, how do you know which uh, person in the room is a pilot? They'll, they'll Don't worry, you. he'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as the plane shut down in fucking Kathmandu, I'm like, that was really cool. You know, blah, blah, blah. I'm a, I'm a twin otter pilot. And he's oh, nice, nice. And, and we started talking about the different equipment that we fly and started talking about the, the three and four hundreds. And I'm like, what do you think of the four hundreds? He's like, fucking piece of shit. <laughs> like, really? He's all, let me. He's like, no, the aircraft is not a piece of shit. The avionics are horrible. And I'm like, yeah, I completely agree. He's like, it's wasted on us. I'm like, yeah, me too. As I just throw people out of it. So yeah, but that was really really cool coming out of Lukla. That that's uh, that's quite a nice little field. It'd be fun to fly in there. 
Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure uh, that's that that's good. that's uh, one of those like one of those airfields that's on everybody's list. What was it? What was the one in the states out, out of Chicago that everybody wanted to fly into? Migs. Was uh, it Migs the one that was sticking out into the water? Uh, you, are you talking about? Oh yeah, yeah that one. And then there was uh, also one uh, called Baderfield in in uh, New Jersey. Uh, that's yeah. at uh, Atlantic City. Um, I actually got to watch a nice little crash on that one. Um, they had a jet, some, uh, some VIP, uh, didn't want to land at the normal airport for Atlantic city. So for some reason, the pilot allowed himself to be browbeaten into landing at Bader field, overran the runway, oh, ended up in the fucking water with both engines running and they just bailed out of the airplane. They didn't even shut the engines off. So <laughs> the, the fucking airplane is empty. Everybody walks away for, or swam away from it. But the, the video was actually John Edo shot the video cause he would fly a helicopter for one of the local news stations. So he's circling around this, I think it was a Lear, uh, circling around this Lear that is self-taxiing in the lagoon uh, before the engines shut off because it's literally just motoring around in the in the lagoon because the pilots bailed the fuck out. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Dur- Oops. Airplane turned boat. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm guessing they were job hunting uh, really quickly after that one. Yeah. yeah I, can, I can imagine to, that. To not even fucking uh, uh, secure the engines. Oops. Yeah, well, two oopses. Yeah, oops. But it's like that's like every accident, right? It's a it's a a number of things that add up to contribute to an any accident. Yeah, I dare say, I dare say. Yeah, Lukla was really really cool. Well, the whole Everest thing was really cool too. I was able to to hang out uh, hang out up there when Skydive Everest was operating as well. Oh, that's gotta be that's gotta be cool. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's every skydiver's bucket list jump is to to make that skydive oh yeah dude well even just watching the operation was really fucking cool because i i had gone up there and and my big bucket list was everest to go see everest and so i did uh, i took a month and just uh, um threw a backpack on my back and hiked up to everest and uh went over chola pass and stuff so i was up just right around nineteen thousand feet was my high point roughly um, and, uh, ended up with a nasty fucking cough and food poisoning. I, I think everybody up there gets sick. It's just like a hospital ward above 13,000 feet. And so by the time I got back to uh, a village called Namchi Bazaar, which is kind of the launching point for all of the, the endeavors in, in, uh, that area of the Himalayas, um, I had, uh, briefly talked to Omar, uh, who I knew was going to be going to, um, Nepal, but I thought he was just going to. Pokhara to do the skydiving on the other side, which is the, um, uh, I don't know, about 45 minutes the other direction out of Kathmandu. Uh, and it turned out that they were actually doing Everest the week before they were going over there. And so he messaged that he was on his way up to Namchi Bazaar. So I got to meet him and hang out for a while. And he invited me to go up to the uh, puja, which is the blessing ceremony with the Lama. Um, for, uh, how was that? Oh, it was fucking cool as hell. Absolutely cool as hell. Although it was really funny because we go up and, and Omar's like, yeah, bring stuff that you want blessed and everything. He'll bless that. He blesses the jumpers. He blesses all the equipment. It takes about an hour. And and it's in this amazing spot. So it's just off the airfield on this little hill that's kind of private away from the trekkers. And you're surrounded by fucking mountains. It's like being in the bottom of a fishbowl because all the mountains are just up. Uh, so you're watching all of this and these crazy cool clouds are rolling by and he's doing this really, really cool chant. Uh, and at one point, Omar's like, hey, listen, he's, he's just saying my name over and over again because the guy is sitting there at the table going, oh, 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 <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, now all I can hear him saying is Omar the entire time. But so he says that. But the funny part was he's in mid chant and he's he's uh, ringing this bell and he's doing these little knocker things and, and uh, I can hear 
what sounds like off in the distance, two or three monks chanting more. And I'm like, was this part of it? Is that going to be like a group of them? This is kind of cool. And then I see the monk starts digging through his robes, and it, it dawns on <laughs> no me way. that the fucking the chanting I'm hearing is his ringtone, and and I'm shooting video at the time, and uh, so you're watching as he digs his phone, he flips the thing open, and then takes the call <laughs> in the middle of the chant. It was fucking hang on, hilarious. we'll continue your blessing in a second, but Dude, I got to take this phone call. So, hey, mom, it was so <laughs> funny, man. Everybody kind of laughed a little bit, but the the blessing ceremony was super super cool, and. Um, so I decided, fuck it, I'm going to, I wasn't really on a time limit. So I'm like, I'm going to stick around. I really want to watch the first jumps. And the first jumps were two tandems and they, they pay through the nose. I mean, that's a $25,000 tandem. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's the a, most expensive tandem in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's out of this beautiful helicopter and the helicopter was, was red with this dragon painted down the side and shit. I mean, it's badass. but, uh, um, it was a, a guy and a girl. And uh, the girl was super stoked, and the guy was really stoked as well, but he was one of those students. He was talking insane amounts because he was freaked the fuck out. Like, he was – you took one look at him and went, oh, my God, he's terrified. Absolutely terrified. And makes me look quiet. He was talking that fucking much. And he would walk away from a group, and everybody would be like, Jesus, God, that guy's nervous. So uh, all I'm thinking is, ooh. I hope he doesn't back out of this jump. <laughs> That's twenty five. Oh yeah, no kidding. Oh yeah, it's all I could think is I'm like, this guy's taking a twenty five thousand dollar fucking ride. I hope to hell he jumps out, and he did, and had an amazing time. But he was one of those ones where that I think had it been a had it been a hundred ninety nine dollar tandem, there is a fifty. He would have been right. He would have been riding down. Yeah, there's a fifty fifty chance that boy wasn't going to jump. And I think it was only the cost of the jump and the fact that his girl went first. Um, and he, he was a super awesome guy. He was just, I mean, you know how it is. Tandems. Yeah, I mean, you, they, they, you never know what you're going to get. You can have somebody that's, that's completely cool headed, mellow, yeah. relaxed. Somebody who was like a, a trauma surgeon or something like that. And you put them out of an airplane and they're, they freak the fuck oh, out. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and they have no control over it either. People like to think that that's just buck it up, be a man. No, man, yeah, it it's, has, it's it completely uncontrollable. And we're just, everybody's watching this guy. Because again, the guys that are doing Skydive Everest, it's Omar and, and Wendy Smith. And we're talking extremely experienced people yeah. that are, all know exactly what they're looking at. I mean, you could see this guy from a mile away. Oh, he's freaked out. And I'll, I'll admit, I kind of judged him a little bit at first because they fly them up in the helicopter to the, the blessing ceremony. And they get out and he's wearing like the the designer jeans and Timberlands and a nice jacket and all this kind of stuff. And the first thing they're telling us is how they had just done the helicopter tour to Everest Base Camp. So instantly I'm insulted because <laughs> I'm like, dude, I just spent two and a half fucking weeks and almost killed myself getting to base camp. And you flew up there to have a cup of tea at base camp and came back down and you're going to tell us how cool it was. So I'm I'm just kind of being that arrogant fuck going, all right, judging and uh, then he starts telling us his story about how he was basically fucking homeless in Oakland growing up as a kid and had to claw his way up and this and that. And he walks away and I'm like, all right, 
I'm an asshole because he's just, he and her have made their money and paid their dues and this is how they want to blow their money. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, if I was stinking filthy rich, I would have fucking flown to base camp too. <laughs> <laughs> hike it? Why, why hike it if you can take it? I, I think I still would have hiked it, but I would have flown back up to have a cup of tea and relax a little bit more because by the time <laughs> I walked into base camp, I thought I was going to fucking die. <laughs> yeah, well, you did that to yourself. Yeah. Well, it was my fault for trying to keep up with a 60-plus-year-old triathlete. And... <laughs> Maybe leave out the 60-plus-year-old part. No, man. He kicked my ass. Dude, I'll tell you what. Going to base camp is a fucking humbling experience because you never really know how the altitude's going to affect you. And I spent months training for that. So, I mean, physically, I was strong, but the altitude was working me and the cough. I got a really, really bad cough. Well, what do you, how do you think, and, and I kind of asked you this before um, before you even went, I was, we were talking a little bit about it, but how do you think, and do you think it helped at all, the fact that you're that you're a jump pilot. I mean, there's there's been lots of times that you that you circle high. I mean, you spend yeah. a lot of your a lot of your time, you know, between above eight thousand foot, nine thousand, ten thousand. I think the only way that being a jump pilot in a in an unpressurized aircraft would assist you at all is not in um, how you handle it, but knowing what's happening. Understanding so, what you're, when you're getting hypoxic. Exactly. Or... So I knew the symptoms quite well, um, but it doesn't it doesn't help anything. And that's why I actually took a lot of extra time to acclimate because you're up so fucking high. I mean, I spent over two weeks above 15,000 feet. That's I, I didn't know what that was going to do. And it definitely worked me. I mean, it was humbling experience because you're, you're up there and uh, there's little local Nepalese school kids that are literally giggling and skipping <laughs> past you as I'm walking like I'm on the fucking moon. You know, it was like a zombie walk with ski poles. You're just barely moving to get up there. And then I had like little old ladies passing me up. But these were people that the altitude wasn't affecting them quite as much. I also got a really nasty cough because I was stupid and didn't keep my face covered up for the first three or four days. And the air is so cold and so dry that you end up getting what's called a kumbu cough, uh, which can get bad enough that people are actually breaking their ribs and separating shit. They're coughing so hard. Jesus. Yeah, so it sounds like a hospital ward. I mean, people just don't sound healthy up there. Uh, and luckily, it didn't hit me that hard. But between having a cough for quite some time by the time I hit base camp day and then trying to keep up with this guy I had met who was this, you know, ultra athlete, I spent like 30 minutes uh, at his pace heading towards base camp and I fried myself. Um, so by the time I finally broke away from him, I was hurting pretty bad. Uh, so by the time I finally went into base camp, I was seeing stars. Like the side of my vision, I was seeing little sparkles going, okay, that's not good. And, and 30, mi 30 minutes doesn't really sound like it's that much time oh. to get smoked. Especially well, for somebody that that's that trained as hard as you did to go up there. Well, it's, it's 30 minutes at max output. Because, I mean, even though you're moving slow... When I'm at sea level, my resting heart rate's high 40s, low 50s. Uh, my resting heart rate from day four on was at the 110 range, which means that when I'm pushing literally as hard as I can, I probably have my heart rate up at like 150, just jumping out of your chest and you are heaving for breath. Um, again, self-inflicted. It would not have been as bad had I paced myself or had I not gotten the cough because I just wasn't getting as much air. But there's a third the air at base camp as there is at sea level, you know? And I mean, you fuck two, two and a half weeks before I was at sea level. So what was it like? What was, what would you say if, if, uh, if you're talking to somebody that's thinking about doing it, cause we, we have, we both have friends that want to do it. Hell, I wanted to do it with you, but the mm. time off of work is a little bit rough. And, mm. um, what's, if you had to sum it up quickly, what's the good, the bad and the ugly about the trip? Uh, the good, the bad and the ugly 
get out of Kathmandu as quick as you can. The, um, the tourist area that you go to in Kathmandu is called Tamil or Tamil. Um, it's really cool for about two days. After that, you're going to get sick. Uh, crazy fucking smog. Uh, and you're walking around this tourist area where every five feet somebody's trying to sell you hash. Um, and um, tourist trinkets and stuff. So that gets a bit old. The smog is really, really horrible for you, though. Um, so from, from smog to some of the cleanest air up there. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a real flip. Um, when you get up uh, uh, up above uh, Namchi Bazaar, the, uh, the, the food can get pretty interesting. Uh, I was vegetarian the entire time, and anybody that knows me knows I'm a huge meat eater, uh, but I didn't eat meat because I was warned away from it. Uh, everything from Lukla up uh, is either carried by yak or by porter. Uh, so imagine that hunk of meat that you're getting ready to dine on four days into your trip got carried up by a porter, and it took just as long to get that piece of meat up to you as it took you to get there. Um, or, or it is the the piece of meat that was carrying it up there. Yeah, you know, yeah, they they, they have fucking yak steaks and yak burgers and stuff. So you're not sure what you're eating. Um, the other downside to that is um, as soon as you start getting to altitude and you're pushing yourself that hard, your appetite dies off pretty fast. Uh, also, nothing heals. As soon as you start getting up above 12,000, 13,000 feet, at least with me, I had a cut on my thumb on day three that didn't heal until I got back to Kathmandu three weeks later. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, it just doesn't heal. Yeah, because your body's prioritizing and the body's priority is keep your heart pumping and, and, you know, get as much oxygen as you can to the main core of you. So that's why frostbite and all that's such a, a big deal because your extremities aren't getting as much uh, air. Um so nothing, nothing heals. Uh, your appetite dies off. And then when you do decide to eat, the food is interesting. Um, they, it's not bad. It's just not what you expect. Like I ordered eggs one morning and they spiced it with something that I have no idea what it was. And it didn't necessarily taste bad. It just wasn't what you were expecting. And when you're... Did it still taste like eggs? No, no, it didn't. No. It didn't. And and when you're when you're already just trying to choke down food, having to choke something down you're not sure if you like or not makes it so much harder. Uh, so the food was tough. You just can't get enough calories in. Do they have any like um, I don't know what would it be like uh, comfort foods or anything like that? <laughs> Snickers. Yeah, I wouldn't hit the trail without Snickers. Um, and I had uh, I bought a bunch of biltong, uh, which for those that don't know is like beef jerky. Um, it was my only source of, of, you know, meat protein. Um, but they have, uh, like one of the most popular drinks up there is ginger lemon honey. Um, which when you've got, that, a, I love that tea though. Oh yeah. Well, like, when you've got I'm a sick, nasty fucking cough, but I ended up getting food poisoning and I, I know exactly when I got it. Uh, it was the day of base camp. Uh, and I, I stayed at a village called Lobuchet and I skipped over a village called Gorkachep, uh, which according to people that I met up there is nicknamed Gorka shit. Because uh, the water's so bad, the drainage is so bad. And, and I talked to a lot of people that said it was just a nasty village to stay in. Um, but you skip over that and go to base camp, which was fine on the way there. But then I had to go all the way back to Lobache, which meant that after this brutal four and a half, five hours to get to base camp, I had to reverse the whole damn thing. Well, I stopped in Gorkashep to get some tea because my lungs were just on fucking fire and my throat was burning. And uh, I ordered a ginger lemon honey and I watched this guy with fucking filthy hands that had been doing all this different stuff literally just grab a wad of ginger with his bare hands and throw it oh, in a cup. God. And then when I got it, Ugh. the tea wasn't boiling. It was just kind of lukewarm. <laughs> 
So, so I'm like, oh, okay. But I, I needed it so bad. I'm, and what are you going to do? I mean, come on. I'm going to be that guy going, no, your dirty hands. Give me a, no, just whatever. And I'm pretty sure that's when I got sick. (laughs) So yeah, the food was kind of rough and it's, it's fucking hard, man. I mean, uh, I trained pretty hard for it and thought I was in pretty good shape for it. And I did okay. Um, but I was far from any kind of a rock star. So if you go into it expecting a certain level of performance from yourself, you're going to potentially be really disappointed. Would you say it's from the, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was lack of training. Would you say it was from muscle fatigue or would you say it's from the altitude? Oh, it's altitude. It's altitude. Uh, cause I trained, uh, cause I live at sea level. I trained by climbing between 1500 and 2000 feet a day up and down the stairs in my building. Uh, so my legs, I never, they were never a factor. I, they didn't hurt once. They, they never got tired. It was just raw exhaustion and being out of breath, constantly trying to catch your breath. Um, and again, the harder you push, the more your body wants air. And then you're getting a lack of sleep because you'll start to fall asleep. Your body systems slow down, which means your respiration slows down, which means you jolt awake as you're falling asleep because your body's like, fuck, we're, we're suffocating. So you'd spend nights just not sleeping. Uh, that's exactly what you want when you're hiking. Oh yeah. No, it's rough. It's rough. It is five to 700 meters a day. Yeah. Well, and then the downside to it too is uh, it turns out one of the big businesses in the Himalayas for those treks is emergency evacuations via helicopter. How many, how many of those did you see? Oh, I watched probably close to two dozen evacuations over the time that I was there. How many times did you think it was going to be you? I didn't ever think it was going to be me, but I mean, it was actually kind of comforting knowing, all right, there's a fucking helipad every 20 feet. They're, they're looking to get people up because they charge $5,000 for an evacuation. So it's no fucking joke. Did you, uh, did you have traveler travel insurance? Yeah. Like Pupa or, or one of those to Yeah, I got World, world Nomads. Na- world Nomads. And did it which, have evacuation? Oh, you damn right. Yeah. <laughs> I made damn sure it was evacuation up to 6,000 meters um, at the whole nine. Yeah, I made sure I had it. But you would get to uh, each new village and everybody's coughing and hacking up a lung. And as soon as you fucking are coughing and you set your head on the table to rest, the host is like, are you okay? Does your head hurt? <laughs> is it altitude sickness? Do we need to get you a helicopter? You come to me if you need this. And so you've just got this constant input of (coughs) you're probably going to die soon from altitude sickness. So let me know. And so as soon as you lay down in bed and the first time you jolt awake, because you feel like you can't breathe, you're like, Oh God, am I altitude sickness? Exactly. (laughs) Is he, is he right? Oh, I think I have a headache coming on. That's a sign of it. Oh, and I haven't been eating. That's a sign of it. And I'm like, well, fuck, you know, so that's in your head as well. So you start beating yourself up a little bit more, but to be honest, it was, it was extremely difficult and painful. And I loved every fucking second of it. Even when I was shitting myself and throwing up from food poisoning, it was amazing. Yeah. How was that in the tea houses? Yeah. Communal bathrooms? Yeah. There, there was one I couldn't use. I ended up going in like 100 meters out from the village and shit in rock because it smelled like <laughs> fucking three-week-old cabbage. I think the Irishman I met must have been there <laughs> a lot. Oh, oh, dude, it was the worst smell I'd ever. I mean, to the point where I, as soon as you walked into the hallway, you'd start gagging. I'm like, no, I can't do this. And the funny thing is, it was the nicest room that I had there. But I mean, it is what it is. You know, I mean, it's, they're, they're not going to be fucking a bunch of American standard toilets and squirty hoses for your backside at fucking 15,000 feet. No, I mean, you're, you're going there to literally <coughs> close your eyes, 
pass out so you can wake up and abuse oh, yeah. yourself all over again. Oh yeah, no, 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 and it was it was absolutely amazing. And I, there were a couple of things I didn't get to do that I wanted to do because the cough got the better of me and because of the food poisoning. And again, having that idea planted in your head that if you go higher, you could get sick. And I'm not even a little bit upset that I missed a couple of things because it means I've got a great reason to go back. It really was that amazing. Like I can't fucking wait to go back. It was it was a real proper test. You know, I mean, you you start the day knowing, all right, the next six hours are just going to fucking suck, but it's going to be stunningly beautiful. Like you take 10 steps and have to take your camera out again. It was annoying. I took over 1,400 pictures. Jesus. Yeah. Just click, click, click. Camera, iPhone? iPhone. Yeah. I took a nice camera, never used it. <laughs> fucking Apple, man. They build a nice phone. Well, you took my GoPro with you. One of my GoPros. Yeah, your fucking either. GoPro didn't work for shit, man. I was, oh, yeah. That I was. That, I think that was user error, though. That you was, had the batteries. You had the card. That was just dead weight. Yeah, I ended up, I, your your GoPro actually stayed in Namchi when I went up to base camp in Chola Pass because I had to come back to, to Namchi to, to um, stay. That's the village that you go in and out of, so. Yeah. But yeah, for anybody even thinking about something like that, I cannot recommend it more. Um you don't have to go with a group. Um, it just depends on your comfort level. I did it solo. I carried all my own shit. Took too much stuff as well, so I've learned definitely how to pack lighter. Uh, but uh, you can't get lost on that trail. So know? what I just heard is uh, anybody that's looking to uh, do this on their own, uh, contact the fucking pilot, and he'll, uh, yeah, he'll man, set you in I'll, the right blogs and I'll the right g- way to go about it. I'll give you. A, <laughs> I'll give you a packing list and a route and and uh, uh, and set you on your way. It was. It really was honestly amazing, and the people were fantastic. Both the the tourists that were there and a lot of the locals, and um, for the most part, the people were fantastic. Again, I wasn't a, a huge fan of Kathmandu. It was cool for a couple of days. I wouldn't go for any more than that. Uh, it was just a bit overpowering especially after you know almost three weeks up in this crystal clear air and and amazing views and now you are crammed into very tight city blocks and heavy heavy smog and so what was the first meal you ate when you got back to civilization fucking steak a big ass (laughs) fucking steak literally from man that's the way to do it oh yeah man from the airport to the house drop the bags back out the door straight to the steakhouse yeah, big 350-gram tenderloin, just a big, fat, juicy. I think I've had two or three of those since I've been back because I've only been back not even a week. So, But I lost almost 20 pounds in less than a month. Jesus, you're not a fat guy. No, man. It just – it was – I mean, well, they say you're burning between four and 6,000 calories a day with your output. And as soon as I was past day four, I was lucky if I was pulling 1,000 calories in, you know, because you're just – not hungry, but, and no appetite. It's just, but plenty of energy. I, it was, I never lacked for energy. It was just exhaustion. It wasn't lack of energy, you know? Wow. Yeah. Interesting, uh, interesting information. I like, like we've talked about, I definitely want to, want to make that, uh, a, a trip at some point. Let's fucking so. go, man. Let's go. Um, I'll, I will buy the tickets for next year right now. That yeah. shit was, eh, it was incredible. And I've never seen, scenery like that and i mean you and i've spent a lot of time in places like bali and stuff like this stunningly beautiful places i've never been any place that had literally everything running rivers fucking massive green trees waterfalls and then you get above the tree line and it's like being on the moon you know but then you're you're hiking up past amadablam which is they call it the matterhorn of the of uh the himalayas and it's just this 
almost phallic fucking mountain just jutting out of the Himalayas. And, and of course, then you see Everest, which it's hard to wrap your head around the size of that thing. It's just so fucking big. Yeah. How were you uh, emotionally when you got up to that, when you actually when you actually got to base camp? Burst into fucking tears. Burst yeah. into tears. Well, so I've been a fan of Everest since uh, the book Into Thin Air that I read in 97, so 23 years. Uh, and I've watched every fucking documentary on that mountain. Um, the, the, the southern route through the Kumbo Ice Falls and up the Lhotse Face, I've, I've watched everything that there has been made about that. Um, and so the history of that uh, was the big thing for me because from base camp, you don't have a great view of Everest. You only see the very tip of it. Uh, what you do see is the Lhotse face. You do see the Kumbu Ice Falls where the climb actually starts, like where it all begins and where the history of that entire route starts, you know, from uh, Edmund Hillary all the way through, you know, um, uh, pretty much m the majority of the climbs and a lot of the fatalities are there. So there's this, this crazy, crazy history. And when you're standing at base camp, uh, you're looking at bodies, you know, buried in the snow all over the place. Cause they don't, they don't come back off the mountain. They stay where they're at. Uh, and again, from books like into thin air, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, um, their history, um, is what sparked it for me. So at one point during the trek to get to Everest, you have to go past all the monuments, one for Scott Fisher and one for Rob Hall. That was pretty intense. Uh, and then you're beat down and you're really fucking tired. And I was sick and everything. And, and at one point wondering if I really got enough juice to make it up here, am I going to have to, you know, go rest for a couple of days, whatever, you know? So I, uh, um, I was about 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, although I didn't know it outside of base camp, wondering if I had enough just juice to push and on a mountain just to the left side of the trail I hear this big snap and for two minutes watch this massive avalanche come rolling down the side of this mountain to the point where the dust from the avalanche was actually reaching the trail I was on that's a that's a little scary pretty fucking intense man <laughs> well and in 2015 I think it was 2015 a number of people in base camp during the climbing season were killed in base camp by an avalanche well, wasn't base wasn't uh didn't they close down Everest for part of a season because of the, the I think avalanches it was, and oh the, yeah no, no the, that ended the season yeah I think that was 2015 2015 was one of the worst years for fatalities I think it was that year uh, and it was basically avalanches. But yeah, avalanches kill people every year, especially in the Kumbu Icefall. So I watched this avalanche and it finishes off. So of course now I've got extra energy, a little jolt of adrenaline and, and you just saw something totally amazing. But I'm still kind of wondering if I've got enough juice to get there. And at this point for the last hour, you're literally head down, you know, one foot in front of the other, uh, for me anyway. Uh, and, uh, Try not to step in yak shit. Just, yeah. Just, well, and it's it's extremely a rough trail. So you're up and over boulders and stuff like this. this is not a fucking groomed trail. It's 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 shale rock and boulders at this point. So not easy to walk on. Uh, so you're just watching where you're going and not really looking around. And I think it was about five minutes after the avalanche. I'm really heaving for breath again. And I finally happened to look up because of these avalanche. Now I'm wondering if another one's going to happen. So I've got my head up a little bit more. And I finally managed to look over my right shoulder. And it dawns on me, that's fucking Everest, like right there. And then I finally take stock of where I'm at. And I'm like, holy shit, wait a second. So if that's Everest, that's Lhotse. If that's Lhotse, that's the Kumbu Ice Falls. And then where's, and I could finally see the prayer flags and instantly I'm like, bye. I made it, I made it. Yeah, instantly. 
so it was it was super hardcore again because I'm so into the history of it all. And then you hit base camp and it soaks in. All right, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, you know, started their climb that killed them from right fucking here. And then you look up at the mountain and go, okay, so if that's the summit, Rob Hall's body is sitting slightly below the Hillary step. And this is where Scott Fisher would be. And then I watched that documentary where the, the avalanche killed these guys on this part of the Kumbu ice fall. And then all of a sudden it's right there and you're looking at it going, Oh wow. And it just kind of all caves in on you. And you're like, there's some insane history right here. I mean, imagine, Every fucking hardcore crazy thing uh, in skydiving that ever happened all happened at one drop zone. And you were a, a huge fan of fucking skydiving and you'd always wanted to go to this spot. And then all of a sudden you're standing on the landing area where everything happened. It would be pretty intense. Yeah, for sure. Same thing with Everest. I mean, you're just standing there going, holy shit. And of course for me too, because it was so hard and because of the cough and because of all this and because I had to work so hard to get there, all I'm thinking is this is where it begins. Like these fucking people got to where it almost fucking, it just worked the living shit out of me to get here. And, and this is just really starting. Yeah, and this is there. where it starts for them. Like when they get back to base camp after climbing, this is where they're relaxing. <laughs> So, yeah, that kind of history all just kind of thumped into me at once, which was awesome. It's exactly what I wanted. That makes you think about how many how many people actually get the, the permits and get the, the permissions to go up and do it and how many people are actually really qualified to, oh, so to make that and how many how many people who just pay the money and get the experience. Yeah. yeah, well, luckily because – well, not luckily, but because of the tragedy in recent years uh, that's happened up there, Nepal has finally started to require experience – uh, for uh, permits. So you have to have high altitude experience. You have to have so many summits above a certain altitude. You have to have, um, uh, I think it's glacier experience. So you have to be able to prove you've got all these things before they'll sell you a permit. Now, is that going to stop the filthy rich people from just laying out some extra money? Of course not. And Nepal's a poor country, so they're going to take the money, of course. But it will deter quite a bit. You know, it's it's not going to be the the pay to play that it has been, which is good. But, you know, for somebody like me, like uh, our mutual friend Olga was giving me shit because she was convinced I would do this and come back ready to start training to climb it. And I got to base camp and took one look up at the peak and went, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I am not that guy. Well, I've seen the pictures and the, and the pictures I know don't do it justice because yeah. I was looking at a couple of the photos you showed me and you're looking at it, you're like. Everest doesn't really seem that big. <laughs> it, it, of course, for, we know that we know that. Yeah, the, I mean, the from, reality from, of it, but. from where you're standing, it doesn't look like it. But from where those ice falls are to the summit is more than ten thousand feet, and I think something like fourteen miles. So imagine gaining ten thousand feet in fourteen miles, starting at eighteen thousand feet. Yeah. Nope. Nope. That's not for me. And I think I, now the statistics have changed a little bit, but it's like one in 12, one in 14 that summit don't survive it. Jesus. No, thanks. No, thanks. I'll stick with skydiving odds or driving in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> That's risky enough. Yeah. Driving in traffic's a lot more uh, dangerous than skydiving. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was my big, uh, that was my big adventure. It was a huge, uh, uh, huge year 50 for me. So I got to do lots of flying around Europe and then all of that stuff. And so now it's back to, Throwing people out of airplanes and making some skydives and stuff. So uh, what's next? What's the, what's the next adventure? What do you what do you see doing next? I'm fucking taking you up there. 
right on. You sure. think I'm kidding? That's next. <laughs> That's fucking next. You and that cocksucker Derek Massey. Fuck you, Derek. Yep. That motherfucker's going as well because both you guys, both you fuckers were going to go with me on this trip and I had to do it solo. So now I'm going to go back knowing what's going on and I'm going to watch you guys suffer. Well, I mean, we get to learn from your mistakes. Yep, absolutely. Pack a lot less. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You won't be the first people to learn from my mistakes. I'm the only one that never learns from my own mistakes. So uh, what did the kiddo think? Did- she thought it was really cool. Yeah, I sent her a bunch of pictures, and she uh, was living vicariously through me while she's busy banging out her first year in law school, being a, the actual adult instead of me. I mean, somebody in the family has to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. As long as it's not me, it's fine. <laughs> as long as it's not me. So, yeah, next year, fucking where you and me will go. Awesome, a- anybody else that wants, you guys want to fucking uh, uh, get a big group of, of uh, uh, know-nothing skydivers to trek up uh, to Everest, let's fucking go. Let's just hope we don't have to helicopter anybody out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, unless there's rigs involved. That would be pretty cool. Right? How cool would that be, actually? You're just like, no, I'm I'm really sick, but hey, I need my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> Do these doors open? <laughs> Yeah, flick off the guys at uh, at Skydive Everest on the way by. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty funny, dude. We were bringing this guy down and he just jumped. <laughs> it would be it would be absolutely fucking incredible. Awesome, so yeah, man. that's the plan. Well, we got the the start, the middle, and uh, where you're at right now. Yeah, so, yeah, fucking uh, hell. For anybody that's that's wondering, I guess they get a, a little uh, look into the into the, the fucking deviant pilot. mind of the of the all fucking the, pilot. All the shit that if they didn't know, they probably didn't want to know. Well, there you go. Well, man, uh, I'd like to thank you for being on your own podcast. Well, I appreciate <laughs> I, I appreciate you having me on my podcast. That was a lot of fun. That was cool. We'll have to uh, do it again. I know we've got some people we want to uh, um, get on here and tag team um, and uh, beat up a little bit. So uh, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, for anybody out there, if uh, you've got ideas on people you would love to hear, uh, Junior or me or anybody uh, shooting the shit with, please, by all means, thefuckingpilot.net, uh, let me know. Uh, in the meantime, uh, this podcast, as always, is brought to you by the greatest magazine in the known universe. Blue Skies Blue Magazine. Blue Skies Magazine. Guys, blueskiesmag.com, blueskiesmag.com to check out all the cool swag, previously published issues, all that shit. Uh, for me, the fuckingpilot.net is the uh, launching spot for all the platforms for the podcast, as well as the spot where you can get both the books that I've written, the fucking pilot book, which is a bunch of articles that I wrote for Blue Skies, and then the accidental stripper. You know now a little <laughs> bit more about what that is. A lot of details into that sordid fucking life so uh, hop on there buy yourself a copy of the books as always i am the fucking pilot with me today was david jr ludwig thanks guys we'll hope do you enjoyed again. all right Talk to you guys soon blue skies see you